Welcome to The Sacramentalists, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We hope moving forward you'll join us for in-depth discussions on how theology intersects with our daily lives. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Father Miles Hickson. And today we're talking about Holy Scripture. What is it? How do we read it like the Church Fathers? And what does it mean in our modern context? So yeah, this is going to be a fun topic. Interesting, because of course the Bible is the source of authority, the pinnacle of authority for us in the Christian tradition. And so it's important to ask these questions about, okay, what exactly is the Bible? How do we approach it? How do we read it? And I think it's, it's important to ask, especially in light of the way interpretation has gone over the past, I don't know, 150 years since the rise of the historical critical method, why does it matter that we read the Bible a certain way? And what we're going to be advocating is reading the Bible like pre-modern. So not necessarily like the way it has been read since the 1850s. And so why does this matter? Why would you want to read the Bible like a pre-modern Christian? So from the get-go, we're going to tell you why it's important. Simply put, it was this approach to Bible, the pre-modern approach, which we'll talk about in a minute, that gave us orthodox doctrine and orthodox practice. So if you like doctrines such as the Trinity, the two natures of Christ, the incarnation, the virgin birth, if you like those orthodox teachings of Scripture summed up in the creed, then you too should like a pre-modern approach to hermeneutics, to Scripture, to exegesis. And also, I think it helps us because um, it prevents us from reading Scripture in a vacuum or conditioned by our own Western modern culture. Um, so by reading with the Church Fathers, we're actually being taught as well. Their, their example really is didactic for us as well. Um, but in order to really, I think, advance further in the conversation, it would help us to step back for a second and answer the question, what is the Bible? And in order to answer the question, what is the Bible, I think it's helpful for us to know a little bit about what the Bible says about itself, but also what the church has said about the Bible and how it came into existence. So where did it come from? The Old Testament uh, was a fairly uh, stable canon by the time that the church was birthed. There wasn't a whole lot of debate about what should or should not be included um, by the time the church is born. However, the New Testament uh, was a little bit more complex. Uh, the first thing uh, it's important to remember, I think, too, in this conversation is that um, when ancients were picking up what we now call the Bible, they weren't picking up a single book, but rather they had all these separate scrolls of books or um, single books or portions of books together. Um, so like there's some literary evidence that maybe the, the minor prophets, also called the Book of the Twelve, would have been read as one collective whole. But they would have been maybe their own scroll, and the prophet Isaiah would have been his own scroll. But you wouldn't pick up one volume and, and read all those things together. Now, part of that was just the facts of history that books or codexes had not yet been invented. Exactly. So a scroll couldn't contain everything. So once they started to make what we would recognize as a book, they did start to put them all together in one volume. But it is helpful to see that in their mind it wasn't uh, holy thumping with a single book all the time. There was, it was the prophetic or prophetic tradition, the legal tradition, the laws, the Torah, these sorts of things that inform Jewish identity and Jewish scripture before the Lord. 
Exactly. And it's also true of the New Testament uh, books that we have now. I mean, the Gospels each circulated amongst what we think are probably their own communities and then eventually began to spread out. The same is true for the epistles. I mean, all the epistles functionally are written to specific churches um, at specific times, you know, addressing specific issues. Um, There is some, I was reading a commentary on Romans yesterday, actually, um, and it is theorized by some readers that uh, maybe it functions like an encyclical. Paul's not really writing to address too many specific issues in Rome, but really a way to introduce himself. So maybe he wrote something like that to other churches too. But but overall, uh, the letters circulated in their own communities. And the real trouble begins in the second century with the heretic uh, Marcion, who we actually talked a little bit about way back in our um, Andy Stanley episode. Marcion taught that the gods of the Old Testament and New Testament were actually different from each other, that the Old Testament God is kind of a violent and mean God and that the New Testament God is really loving. And um, and so he pitted those two things against each other. And as a result, he cut out not only the Old Testament from Scripture, but also parts of the New Testament that he deemed too Jewish. Uh, And he also, interestingly for this conversation, uh, emphasized only the literal interpretation of Scripture. He refused to read uh, allegorically. So anyways, his canon consisted of what we would call now the Gospel of Marcion, which seemed like an adapted version of the Gospel of Luke, kind of the original Jefferson's Bible. He cut out the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, And then he included the Pauline letters of Galatians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Romans, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, uh, the letter to the Laodiceans, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon, uh, and then cut out all of the Catholic letters and the Apocalypse of St. John. So he even included in his canon something that we wouldn't include. So normally when you think of this like Jefferson Bible type idea, it's normally taking a received canon and cutting it down. But you can tell Marcion's actually... He's attempting to form and shape a canon, which is which is really interesting because the canon is actually only formed in the face of heresy. That's right. And it should be noted, too, that Marcion wasn't some I use this word carefully. He wasn't some French guy in the sense that it was him and like 10 guys that liked what he said. He had a lot of people following him. I mean, at one point in certain areas in the ancient world, Marcionite churches were more popular than Christian churches, um, geographically speaking. So, um, you know, he had a large following. And and, and because of this, it served as an impetus for uh, bishops in Orthodox, what we call Catholic dioceses, to establish lists of books that were deemed authoritative and acceptable for their diocese. So Athanasius would be an example of someone who uh, did this early on, and uh, other bishops followed suit, and most of them agreed on at least the really core books of the New Testament. By the time of Origen in the 3rd century, uh, it seemed like there was pretty much universal agreement on what we think of as the New Testament with some contestation, uh, the book of Hebrews, the book of James, uh, 2 Peter, 2nd and 3rd John, and the Apocalypse of St. John were all debated. And um, in order to finally get in, there was a little bit of horse trading and uh, compromising and things that went on. But uh, that's unimportant relatively, I I would argue. Interestingly enough, though, uh, the Roman Catholic Church really only formalized their canon um, at the Council of Trent in the 16th century. There are some, uh, I think Voltaire popularized the idea that uh, the first Council of Nicaea established a canonical list of books, but the council didn't, as far as we can tell. There's one reference in uh, in Jerome's 
commentary on Judith where he says that the council said it was canonical, but it doesn't seem like there was a list of fully canonical books coming out of the can uh, coming out of the uh, the council. Right. So if you're listening to this and you're going, wow, it sounds like the church kind of made up what was in and out of the New Testament. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is it took hundreds of years for the church to come down solid. And we would say by the guidance of the Holy Spirit on the official list. Every book in your New Testament has been read since apostolic times. Now, some other books, Shepherd of Hermas, Letter to Laodicea, uh, Epistle of Barnabas, these sorts of things might have been read as well. But over time, the church, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, said those are wonderful, edifying works, you know, such as the epistles of Clement. Those are great, but they are not the canon of Scripture to be held on par with Old Testament Scripture as as the Jewish uh, Jewish believers first century received that canon. And I think it's helpful, too, to remember that in modern times, we like the idea of the Bible as a book that sort of dropped from heaven. And so we don't really think about all these developments that had to take place in order for it to become what it is. But, you know, and I think this is part and parcel of a, of a sacramental worldview uh, that God often works slowly through time uh, in ways that we wouldn't expect. So it really shouldn't, I don't think, be problematic for us that that this is the way that Scripture developed. It just it just is how it developed. It would be nice sometimes if maybe the Bible fell out of heaven, but it's just not that easy. Right. And this is the way he developed the Old Testament canon. There's a reason the book of Enoch and the book of Jubilees are not in the Old Testament canon. Yeah. They just didn't. They, the, the community of the faithful, by the guidance of God, didn't go that direction. And so we can put our trust in the community in this, this regard. And then, and then, of course, Holy Scripture is, is truly a thing unto itself meaning yes. it is inspired and, and has God, it is God breathed. So it, we're not saying that the tradition makes scripture. It's, but there is this reciprocal relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what has that tradition said uh, about the, um, about the scriptures? And I, you know, there's a lot of potential places that we could go to say, to figure out what the church fathers and the church has taught about scripture. But I found one really interesting uh, patristic example, and this is Origen. Uh, and on in his uh, book on the Passover, he uh, he talks a little bit about Scripture, and I think it's fascinating and sets up a really robust understanding of Scripture for us. Um, so he actually rejected um, in his reading of Exodus the idea that the Passover was about the Passion. And this is an area where I think I I probably disagree with him on a little bit. But his argument is that the lamb was sacrificed by faithful people while the son of God was crucified by lawless men. So they don't really it doesn't really work to say it's about the passion. So his kind of question then is, well, what is it about? Because he does read the lamb as Christ. So this is what Origen says. And I think this is pretty great. If the lamb is Christ and Christ is the logos, what is the flesh of the divine words if not the divine scriptures. This is what is to be eaten, neither raw nor cooked with water. Should therefore some cling just to the words themselves, they would eat the flesh of the Savior raw, and in partaking of this raw flesh would merit death and not life. It is after the manner of beasts and not humans that they are eating the flesh, since the apostle teaches us that the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. If the Spirit is given us from God, and God is a devouring fire, citing Deuteronomy 4.24 and Hebrews 12.29, the Spirit is also fire. 
which is what the apostle is aware of in exhorting us to be aglow with the Spirit, Romans 12, 11. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is rightly called fire, which is necessary for us to receive in order to have converse with the flesh of Christ, I mean the divine scriptures, so that when we have roasted them with this divine fire, we may eat them roasted with fire. For the words are changed by such fire, and we will see that they are sweet and nourishing. That's amazing. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Yeah, so walk us through that. That is a yeah. complex. That's very origin like. Yes, it is. This is classic origin. So so for those of you who maybe are a little bit rusty on your Exodus history, the instructions that were given to the Israelites were that they were to take the lamb that was slaughtered and they were to roast it over fire. So they weren't supposed to eat the meat raw and they weren't supposed to boil it in water. So origin makes the argument that the lamb signifying Christ in its flesh gives life. But where is that life found for the Christian? It's found in the divine words of Scripture. Christ, as the Word, reveals himself through the Word. And so uh, to partake of the words of Scripture raw is like eating it after the manner of beasts. It's not really a fully human way to encounter the Scripture. And, and so he, uh, he, he says you have to encounter the Scriptures through the Spirit, which he associates with fire. So only when we encounter the scriptures through the Holy Spirit can we actually fully understand them. And note that he says the words are changed by the Spirit. Scripture takes on a new meaning because of the Holy Spirit. This is like when Jesus talks to the uh, Pharisees in John. I think it's John 5. And the Pharisees cite Moses against Christ. And Christ says, well, if you really believed in Moses, you would believe in me because Moses writes about me. Just like the the road to Emmaus, he you know he explains the scriptures to the to the disciples in a way that shows how it all points to him. Uh, so the Holy Spirit is the agent through which one's eyes are open to this understanding. And I think that's really powerful. That origin. I mean, we can talk about his exegesis and whether that's what the Passover passage is about. But at least the point that he's getting at, which I think is crucial for the conversation here, is that Holy Scripture is not simply a book that is read or approached with in kind of a scientific mindset, right? That would be what we're kind of critiquing as the modern, some some ways even postmodern approach is still seeing scripture as this other that you approach and that you stand over the text. But rather he's saying that scripture is this means through which Christ is discovered and revealed, but it requires the reciprocal of the Holy Spirit within us. And so scripture is truly the community's book, which is where the spirit dwells among the church, right? Christ and his body. And so you don't understand scripture fully unless you're a part of that body. And so I think just practically speaking, then if an unbeliever says, well, that doesn't make sense in Scripture, you would say, yeah, that it probably doesn't make sense to you. It requires the Spirit to reveal. And I think what he's really getting at here is the Spirit is going to reveal, as he does here in this passage, that everything is about Christ. Christ is the underlying feature of all Scripture. But I might be jumping ahead. A little bit, but that's okay. We get a little preview of what we are going to talk about. But to end this section, I thought it might be helpful since we are an Anglican podcast to uh, refer back to Article 6 in the 39 Articles, which gives us kind of a parameter for how we should think about Scripture, which is that Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man 
that it should be believed as an article of the faith or be thought requisite of necess- or necessary to salvation. In the name of the Holy Scripture, we do understand those canonical books in the Old and New Testament of whose authority was never doubted in, in the church. And I think the important point to point out in this article is that the Scriptures are placed within the context of salvation. It is a book delivered to us, or a set of books, you know, these writings, for the sake of our growth in the knowledge and love of the Lord. Um, and so... That means it pertaineth to salvation. And what is the core of salvation? Christ and him crucified. Again, I jumped jumped ahead, but all scripture, all scriptures there. Yes, you are absolutely right. So I think that this gives us a foundation, the origin quote in the 39 articles, by which we can then begin to discuss how do we read the Bible like the church fathers? What do they see in scripture that might be different from how we were raised? I don't know about you, Father Miles, but being raised in uh, Baptist circles, non-denominational circles, going to a school like Liberty, you know, I mean, we we thought very highly of the Bible for sure. Uh, But what we thought what made us think highly of it was that it was historically accurate, that um, that it literally shows you the truth uh, of God and, and all those things, which are are good, but I would argue maybe incomplete. Uh, I think the first thing that it would be helpful for us to talk about is that the church fathers believed that scripture was sacramental, not one of the sacraments proper, but it was sacramental insofar as it conveyed Grace, And I think this is what Origen's talking about. In eating the scriptures, you know, you are changed. The scriptures change and you change as a result of that. Um, And I think what that means is that when we read the Bible, we can't think of it like any other book because we have to see it as fully divine and fully human at the same time. Uh, So one example uh, of this would be Peter N.'s book, um, Incarnation and Inspiration. Ironically, I think some of his later work has contradicted uh, some of those premises um, in in the earlier book. But um, but the point there is that the hypostatic union, uh, much like being a template by which we can understand things like Christ's nature and also the the Eucharist, I would argue, is also a template for how we can understand the Bible. Um, so, for example, to pit the divine and human facets of Scripture against each other would be a kind of biblio-Nestorianism. And then I think to argue that Scripture is really only divine— uh, that there really wasn't any human component to it is is bibliodocetism. Uh, and then to argue that Scripture is only human is really uh, bibliomonophysitism, right? I mean, you can't have uh, you you can't harp on one of those at the expense of the other is the point. And if you're not up on your ancient Christological heresies, the whole point we're trying to make is the Bible is this beautiful interplay of God's divine word and human product and how we how we articulate that, what that means in particular details and instances, we'll leave for another time for you to figure out with your priest. But what we're trying to say is that you are holding God's word, but you're also holding the product of a human mind, many human minds. So we don't have the same view of scripture as, say, the Muslim does of the Quran, which is that it was dictated from heaven. And so it, it in and of itself is almost this worshipped object. Now, I have seen this in Christian circles. And in fact, within the past few months, I actually went to uh, I was at a church. I won't say which one or what denomination, but the person standing there uh, in front of a group of youth told them to pick up their Bibles, to kiss it, 
and to hug it and to say, I love you. And, and I love the Bible. I mean, we kiss the Bible on Sundays, right after the reading of the gospel, that's a very liturgical act, but there was something in that because it wasn't a liturgical church to know that this is ele- this is the Quranic view of scripture, something that we would say, it was almost bibliology or something like that. I don't know. It made me uncomfortable. Yeah, that, that is highly uncomfortable. I think it's how helpful to remember, too, that grace uh, perfects nature. It doesn't destroy nature. So a view that would erase the humanity of Scripture uh, really doesn't uh, do justice to how the Holy Spirit frequently works with us. It's not that the Holy Spirit had to erase Paul in order to get the epistles, but rather using Paul, the epistles were developed and and are the word of God. But I do think it's important for us to harp on the divine element. So in a lot of modern scholarship, the idea that Paul is having this beautiful interplay with something in Genesis or something in the prophets, you know, people will just say, well, ah, it's a bit too far of a stretch. Paul couldn't have known or Luke didn't have that in his mindset. Or do you really think that's what Matthew was thinking about? But I think when you add that divine element, which what we're really saying is that scripture is a unified whole by one author. And if you have one divine, uh, eternal, infinite author, then some pretty cool things can take place in scripture. And I think it was this mindset that allowed the church fathers, like what we just saw in Origin, to plunge deep into the meaning of scripture because it isn't just a human book. There's only so far you can go with Homer and with Virgil. But with Scripture, the Father saw you can go deep, 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 deep because God is eternal. And I think that sets us up for how they begin, how they did understand Scripture. What were those levels of understanding? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, as the as the church tradition developed and, and these themes of the Holy Spirit being the author of all of Scripture uh, kind of emerged, then uh, the church fathers began looking at, at what we call now the four senses or the four levels of Scripture. And not every father used them the exact same way. Some of them only really viewed them the Scriptures as having two senses and others three. But four is the model that we typically use now to explain patristic exegesis. So the four models of scripture are the literal, uh, the allegorical, the moral or tropological, uh, and the eschatological and anagogical. Now, the literal, and in fact, we have a we have a bonus episode coming out next week with where I interview Dr. Hans Borsma, and uh, he's an expert on patristic exegesis and biblical theology and things like that. And um, he and I had a conversation about the literal sense, so I won't spoil it too much. But basically, uh, the literal is not to the church fathers what it means to us. So to us in modern Christianity, when we hear taking the Bible literally, we often mean um, like the way that someone might approach Genesis 1. A young earth creationist is a literal reader of Genesis 1, and everyone else is a figurative reader of Genesis 1. Well, that's not really the way that the church fathers thought about this. The church fathers just meant literal in the sense of what the text itself says, kind of in its original context and phrasing, without imposing um, vast Christological schema onto the text. Um, but if you read, like, uh, for example, Gregory of Nyssa's Life of Moses, which is a fantastic demonstration of patristic exegesis. He reads through it once, 
on the literal level, and then he reads through it again on an allegorical level. And while the allegorical level is certainly more transcendent and more Christologically focused, he still refers to Christ uh, in the on the literal level. So it's not like he's um, it's not like he's embracing just a historical reading of the text. I guess it's 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 more complicated than that. And I think maybe Dr. Borsma can clear that up for us next week. Right. Yeah. And I would say that what we think of as this historical, critical approach to scripture, it it really is something of a more modern invention. Uh, uh, Jerome does it some, but not as much. And part of that is just simply because they didn't have the resources. They didn't. History is a discipline as we think of it, going back and studying culture, context, language, all these things that didn't really come about until the Middle Ages. So a good example of this, I know it's a bit off topic, is why why do all the paintings in the Middle Ages show Jesus and the disciples looking like white European men dressed in medieval clothing? Because they didn't have a concept of history. They didn't know you're supposed to make a painting look like what the painting, what, what the people dressed like back then. History was not a discipline like we think of it. So that means that the literal reading of Scripture for them wasn't a historical grammatical reading, but it was more, I think, what what you hear in the word literal, liter, meaning letter, it's more the letter of the of the text. What do the letters actually say and put together, and what does that mean? And sometimes that points you towards Christ, and it should, but not, not deeper as allegory is. So take us to allegory. Yeah, and one other comment about the, the literal, too, I think that's important, is that a lot of the church fathers use Paul um, when he says that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life when they're talking about the literal. So the point there being uh, the literal is important and necessary, just like the law is important and necessary, which is what Paul is talking about in that original context. But by itself does not produce what the spirit can produce, which is life. Well, it's it's funny you say that. I'm reminded of a conversation I had with a Baptist pastor. It's probably been three months and this Baptist pastor is a friend of, of mine, and I was having dinner at his house, and he's actually been listening to the podcast. So if, he, if he's listening, he knows who he is. And uh, great shout out to you. Great conversations we had. And he was saying how it took him years to realize that what he was taught, which was as a pastor, as a preacher, you get up in the pulpit and you exegete the passage verse by verse. And he started to realize how it just wasn't life-giving. And, and, and he looked at me and said, how could it not be life-giving? That's what he was thinking, right? I was thinking, how could this, this is God's word. How could not reading and articulating and explaining word by word not bring life? And what he realized was missing was this preaching of Christ in every text. And I know we'll get there. But it's the same thing that he began to notice that the letter, just because you articulate the grammar and the history or in the church father's case, kind of what the words mean beside each other, it it's, you're not quite there yet. You have to put it all together. And this is where the discipline of biblical theology, which is a great modern kind of return to the patristics, mm-hmm. has been super helpful, super great corrective. Anyway. And, and, and I think because the literal is important, it means we don't have to dismiss wholesale modern historical critical methods entirely. Yeah, yeah, reject, of course. We have to reject certain ideological assertions made by those schools of thought. Uh, that the whole of the meaning of Scripture can be determined if we can just figure out who, which source contributed to this text or, or whatever it is. That's silly. But um, but those advances that have been made 
can contribute to our understanding of the literal for sure. It's just not what the church fathers would have meant by the word literal. So, uh, so you start with the literal, and the literal was very important to the church fathers um, and influenced every all the other senses. I don't know about you, Father Miles, but growing up, we were taught that allegory was sort of arbitrary. It was a reading into the text, whatever you wanted to be there. Oh yeah, it was a very um, it was a very infantile and uh, unacademic approach to scripture. So I mean, even into seminary or it's not seminary college at times, to say, well, that's allegorical or you're allegorizing, that was an automatic dismissal of whatever you're talking about in the text. Absolutely, but really, what the church fathers mean by allegory is a spiritual understanding of the text that points to Christ. And so uh, I'm thinking of uh, the text in Exodus uh, where the the Israelites go to the waters of Marah, and it's bitter water. And so God has them cast the tree into the water, and then it becomes sweet, and they can drink it. Well, you can read that very much on a literal level of God miraculously providing for the Israelites in a moment where they needed him. And that's a totally valid and important way to read that text, and you have to read it that way first. But you have this idea of bitter water and this tree being cast into it to change it, and you can come away like Origen did from that text realizing that it's about Christ, that Mm -hmm. the bitter water can symbolize the law, which is bitter. Uh, because we can't ever—it doesn't produce life. We can't ever completely follow it. Um, it only condemns the sinful person. But Christ on the cross, a kind of tree, comes and changes the law. The law becomes a very sweet thing to the Christian uh, because it's been transfigured by Christ. That's not evident so much in the literal level. You wouldn't come away just reading it on that level with that stuff. But through allegory, intentionally trying to see Christ in the text— you can see how it has a deeper meaning. And I think this goes back to what was said earlier, just that if God is the ultimate author and scripture pertaineth to all things necessary for salvation, then that means we should be looking for how God is promoting salvation through Christ in every text. Absolutely. And I think this is, and this is what Paul does. I'm thinking of the great passage in Galatians where he allegorizes, he actually says that, he allegorizes between the two women, between Sarah and Hagar, Jerusalem above and Jerusalem below. And so I think that we have a, not, not even just permission, but we, we have a directive through Paul's own approach to Scripture that we too should return to the Old Testament and be looking for these places where Christ and the church is underneath or behind or above or however you want to describe the literal meaning of Scripture. Another one that I find really interesting that the church fathers saw so very clearly again in the book of Exodus is when Moses approaches the the burning bush. And so the literal reading they see is Moses coming up to this bush and God is speaking to him and giving him spiritual instruction and calling. And they apply that in all sorts of ways to the way God calls us and, and, and how he's eventually going to call his servant Jesus and all this sort of stuff. But then the allegorical reading becomes... The burning bush is is the Virgin Mary who is consumed with the voice and word of God, the Holy Spirit, but is not, I should say that differently, is engulfed with the fire 
and the word of God, but is not consumed, is not burned away. And as the law, Moses, approaches this new covenant, the Virgin Mary giving birth to Christ, it seeds, it gives way, it must stand on holy ground, for this is holier than the law. That's the allegorical type reading that that gives way to Christ in all things. Absolutely. Yeah, so so you have literal and then you have allegorical. And then the other two senses, um, which I don't think we have to go into quite as much uh, as the first two. I think the first two are really important. And the second two, like I said, not every church father reads all four of these um, senses. Um, but the this third is the moral sense or the tropological sense. Which just is to say that all scripture, it, it kind of echoes what Paul says in Second Timothy, right? All or First Timothy, all scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, for rebuking, for exhortation. Um, so scripture tells us how to live, um, and so even in kind of narrative reading of scripture, not just where the, there's the law or, or explicit instructions, you can determine things about right and wrong moral behavior which is valuable. Yeah, I would almost say that this is kind of the preaching sense of Scripture. We all do this. You look at a passage, and even though the passage has nothing to do with how you should live, maybe it's about David and Jonathan, right? How many sermons have we heard about friendship from David and Jonathan? Mm -hmm. It's that sort of idea. This is the moral approach to Scripture. Now, sometimes, I'll admit, it goes kind of far and weird and bizarre, such as Origen talks about the four cardinal virtues being the four rivers in Eden that flow out from paradise. I think it's a rhetorical point he's making and a preaching point, but that's what they're trying to do. They see morality and holy living within scripture as being a primary goal of God's revelation to us. And and in conjunction with that, they also, the fourth sense is the eschatological or the anagogical. That is that all things are pointing to their ultimate end, um, which I think is, I think is a good reminder um, because scripture finds itself kind of as a cause within a causal chain uh, that ultimately leads us to the end. So reading it in that light, I think is helpful. But as you say, it kind of sometimes when you sit down and, and with a father and they're reading uh, the third and fourth sense into the text, it can come off as just a little bit um, weird sometimes. So if someone were to ask you, what's the difference between the allegorical and the eschatological, how would you describe, how would you answer that? In my view, uh, in most of the church fathers, the allegorical is, is explicitly Christological. That is somehow it points to Christ and him crucified. The eschatological uh, points us beyond that in a sense. Uh, and I don't, I don't like that term beyond as if to, to say that the cross is somehow irrelevant in the eschatological, but it points us to the end of things. Yeah. I think that would be how I would distinguish between those two. No, that's good. That's what I would say. Yeah. And so that second sense, the allegorical gets called a, a lot today, the, the typological, but I know we're about to talk about types, so maybe that's a good segue. Yeah, well, actually, there's a really good um, there's a really good portion of Henri de Lubac's writing about the terms allegory and typology and things that I think is really helpful because this is especially true, I think, in evangelical scholarship. The term typology has become really popular uh, because they don't like the term allegory, but then you read. Paul in Galatians 4, or you read 1 Corinthians 10, where the rock was Christ. And so you say, well, those are those Old Testament things are types and figures and shadows of what is to come. Uh, we call that system of thinking type and anti-type, 
So all those old Testament, Joseph is a type of Jesus. Jesus is the anti-type. Moses is a type of Jesus. Jesus is the anti-type. Um, like you said, the burning bush is a type of Mary. Mary is the anti-type. All those things chronologically point forward to a greater reality. Um, and that's really helpful, um, especially on the literal level, to read things that way. But I think I think somewhat insufficient because it assumes chronology, right? It assumes that Christ wasn't crucified already uh, when Joseph was alive. But if you read Revelation, what is Jesus but the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth? Um, so that leads us to what E.B. Pusey uh, and others have talked about, which is really, instead of type arced anti-type, we should think about this as type archetype. Uh, that the archetype is the origin of the type. Not that the type points forward to something, but that the type exists in and through the archetype. So you mentioned the burning bush just a minute ago, Father Miles. The thing that, uh, and this is actually on the cover of Dr. Borsma's book, Scripture as, um, Scripture as Real Presence, uh, where he has, it's, it's Moses at the burning bush, but the burning bush is shaped like a chalice. And Jesus is in the center of the burning bush. Well, that's that's a pretty radical reimagining of the story. It doesn't. That's not saying that the story points forward to Jesus somehow. It's saying Jesus is present in the story. Mm. That's different. the The type is participating in the archetype, uh, and I think that's a more um, I think sacramental way to view scripture. And I think it's, I think it's more patristic. Uh, I'm thinking of, um, Oh, what's his name? William of St. Thierry has a lot of writing about the ark in the old Testament. And, and he has this giant diagram of the ark, which really makes the ark to be like the world, his conception of the world. And guess what's at the very center of the ark, the tree of life, which is also the cross. Hmm. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> but you have to have a more expansive imagination than just this type points forward to that type. It's got to be more than that. So type archetype, I think, makes a lot of sense. And again, just to reiterate, all of this goes back to a robust understanding that God wrote Scripture mm -hmm. and was planning out every word of it before the foundations of the earth and will and the purpose of Scripture is to reveal salvation in Jesus Christ. If those are your starting premises, which the fathers would give to us, which I think Scripture would give to us itself, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for reproach and edification, then you see these things, you see these connections, and you see type, you see anti-type, you see type, you see archetype, you see allegory, you see how all of Scripture, and all these terms we're using, are just trying to get at one reality, and that is, through the words of Holy Scripture, you participate in Christ and that he is present in, beneath, behind, in front of, all around every story in a way that isn't an afterthought. And I think that's what you might be saying is that it seems like uh, a lot of the type fulfillment language makes it sound like you can then go back to the Old Testament after Jesus comes and it's and you see these parallels as almost like Jesus was an afterthought of the Old Testament story. When really what we're trying to say is Christ is present from the beginning and his salvation narrative is there being embodied through the lives and stories, not in an 
not just in a typological way, but in a real way, in a sacramental way. Hard to explain, but that is what the fathers understood as the primary focus of Scripture. Yes. Yeah, it's always, I think, helpful um, because it's easy to slip back into a kind of chronological understanding that that these types point forward to something else. And and in a sense, they do. But, uh, but when you ever kind of slide back into that way of thinking, just read 1 Corinthians 10. Paul doesn't say the rock was a type of Christ. He doesn't say the rock points forward to Christ. He says the rock that followed the Israelites in the wilderness was Christ. Uh, and it's it's pretty radical. You know? I mean, it's pretty different from the way that that I had been taught to read Scripture. But it's it's um, it seems thoroughly apostolic and thoroughly uh, patristic to do so. The final uh, the final thing I think that it might help too, as we talk about allegory and how to understand Scripture, is this idea of a virtue hermeneutic. That is that the church fathers didn't see our reading of Scripture as disembodied from the rest of our lives. Uh, that a person who has rejected God and the gospel, um, who lives in constant immorality or, or whatever, uh, can't approach the scripture and receive the same meaning or be, or be aware of the same meaning that someone who is in Christ would necessarily come away with as well. So uh, the scriptures are transfigured would be the language that someone like origin would probably use by the Holy Spirit in that we see these deeper meanings. We see what scripture really is about. It's about Christ. That's done by the Holy Spirit. And as that is happening to us, we are becoming transfigured by the Holy Spirit as well. So it's like this weird, the the Bible becomes like a mirror for people. Um, So if you uh, approach it with presuppositions that oppose it, you're not going to see this stuff in Scripture. Um, but if you're open to the Spirit, if you are pursuing holiness, then uh, th- that meaning will be revealed to you. I'm thinking about the way Origen talks to uh, the um, pagan Celsus, who we don't really know a lot about Celsus. Most of what we know about him is through Origen. But he was a philosopher who followed the Neoplatonic tradition, and um, he was very critical of Scripture for on a lot of levels. And one of the constant uh, complaints that Origen has, and Origen is good about answering the actual complaints. He doesn't just slough it off, but he says this is an epistemological issue. Because you worship false gods, because you reject Christianity wholesale, you're not going to be able to understand what's really going on in the text. Um, so, so as we become more virtuous, as we become more like Christ and conform to his image, then we understand scripture more, which I think is an interesting way to view it. Well, it might help at this point to go through uh, an example kind of thoroughly. Uh, so I thought it might be helpful to look at the parable of the good Samaritan. We all know the story of the Good Samaritan, right? The man is traveling uh, from Jericho to Jerusalem. He gets attacked by robbers and beat up. They take all his money, his clothes, and he's laying on the ground. And by him walks a a priest, and the priest doesn't stop. He just keeps walking. And then by him walks a scribe, and the scribe doesn't stop, stop. He just keeps walking. And then a Good Samaritan comes. And he sees the man beaten on the side of the road. He picks the man up, puts him on a donkey, uh, brings him to the nearest inn, makes sure he gets food and medicine and taken care of. 
gives the uh, gives the inn owner money for uh, for um, expenses and says, "I'm going to come back and I'll pay you whatever more you spent." That is the good Samaritan. That's what it means on the literal level, we might say, to love other people, to take care of our fellow neighbor. I mean, those are all important things, and we can get that from a literal reading of the text. But in one of his homilies, Origen gives us an allegorical reading that I find infinitely more profound and ultimately that gives more significance to those principles that we can draw from the literal uh, reading of the text. So this is what Origen says about the Good Samaritan. The man who was going down from uh, Jericho to Jerusalem, that is, was is Adam. Jerusalem is paradise, and Jericho is the world. The robbers are hostile powers. The priest is the law. The Levite is the prophets, and the Samaritan is Christ. The wounds are disobedience. The beast is the Lord's body. The inn which accepts all who wish to enter is the church. The manager of the inn is the head of the church, to whom its care has been trusted. And the fact that the Samaritan promises he will return represents the Savior's second coming. That's awesome. Isn't that great? I, it's, it is salvation history in this one parable that Jesus tells. I love it. Um, I think it, uh, if we were only focused on the literal— and we got those lessons that it's important for us to love people. Uh, that's that's good. It's good to love people. It's really important. But it doesn't really tell us why we need to love people. But the allegorical reading does. Because as readers who are um, a part of Adam, the old man, you know, uh, who are have been attacked by these powers, uh, and then were redeemed by this good Samaritan, were brought to safety by this good Samaritan, it brings significance to our love of neighbor that otherwise we wouldn't have been able to have. We can connect this to Paul's writing. You know, um, Christ loved us while we were yet sinners. Um, and so then we ought to love one, love the other uh, because of the love that we received when Christ loved us. Um, so it's a very different way of approaching the story, but one that I think is is infinitely more valuable. Yeah, I think that it, it reveals again, that scripture has as its goal and tell us the telling forth of the story of Christ and that that takes place in multiple ways. So yeah, in the literal level, you can talk about kind of loving one another and Jesus's love. And, and so you end up connecting. If you ever go from the story, which I've heard pastors do, priests do, of love one another and be a good Samaritan to Jesus is the good Samaritan who loves you, that's allegory. Origin just goes all the way and ascribes everything, uh, these images and these pictures. And I know the question that's often raised is, well, where is he getting this from the text? The text doesn't say that the man is Adam and that the priest is. No, you know, you're right if you're looking for a one to one. But that is a modern question to ask. The church fathers approach these passages as gifts to be used in the direction of the Holy Spirit or by the direction of the Holy Spirit for the sake of Christ. And so they saw great freedom in approaching the text. Whereas I feel today we approach the text with with a series of constraints. We assume we have to be constrained. And they assume that the depths were infinite. And so have at it and explore. Yes, that's exactly it. 
it's it's one of those things that uh, and Gregory of Nyssa talked about this a lot of kind of moving into the infinite mystery of God. There's always more layers to be explored in that journey. Um, and so uh, scripture certainly presents us with a similar uh, a similar challenge because it comes from God. And so it would naturally do that for us. Um, it's interesting too, kind of connected to this. One of the problems that a lot of Greco-Roman readers of scripture had was that scripture is not well worded uh, in the Greek. It's like the gospel of Mark, for example, is is really, most scholars would say, this is poorly written Greek. Uh, I have some theories that probably it's because that wasn't the writer's first language, um, that he, you know, is, is um, he's not writing in his native tongue. Um, and so uh, the Greek is not well done. It's like written, it's like reading maybe a middle schooler's account of, of something. Um, it's not going to be well, well done. But, uh, but Origen actually responds to that argument. And he says that it's not well written so that it's more accessible for people. That, mm. uh, that Plato and Socrates, they say a lot of the same things that Scripture says. And they say it eloquently as well, and that's good, and we should read those, those sources. But they're not accessible to the average person. It's like it's like a finely cooked meal that you could only sell to the richest people. You know, they, but the average person doesn't have the means to get that meal. Well, you could cook a very hearty meal uh, that everyone can eat. Uh, it's cheaper, but it's healthy, and it's just as good for you nutritionally as the the fine meal. That's kind of what Scripture does. And so really what uh, Origen does when he is answering back that argument is he's, he's saying Scripture is cruciform. It's, uh, it's in a sense, self-sacrificial. You know, it's mm. not as eloquent, but it does that so that it can bring everyone who picks it up into the church which I think is a really cool way of um, tying Scripture to the uh, kenosis of Christ and the Incarnation. Um, Philippians 2, maybe, he had in mind while he was writing that answer. Yeah, and, and connected to the point you said of kind of Scripture is for the masses, and it is for the average person to pick up and read. I find it interesting in my own ministry, and my own interactions with people, that the basic layperson's approach to scripture is highly Christological and allegorical. Mm -hmm. I think that there is a natural impulse, or maybe you would say an impulse by the spirit from Christians to read the scriptures the way the church fathers did. You have to be taught not to, mm -hmm. is what I've come to realize. Yes. And so I think those impulses, priests, pastors, if you're listening, the impulses of our people under us as they approach scripture is sometimes so untainted by academia. And I love academia. Don't hear me say that it's all evil and wrong or something, but sometimes it can bog us down and distract us. But their approach is so, I'm going to use the word pure, untainted, that we, we should listen. We should heed when our people are reading scripture and interpreting it for us. Absolutely. And that actually leads into the next part of the conversation that we had planned, which is the, that um, reading the Bible in modernity is kind of difficult because of academia. Uh, and that is the rise of historical criticism, which really began in the 1800s as a um, continuation of the Enlightenment. Uh, and so historical criticism in the Bible, well, first of all, what it did was it, it disconnected biblical studies from dogmatic theology 
Um, before the Enlightenment, those were well, really, even before the Reformation, those were really one field. You know, how you read the scriptures and how you did theology, those were all interconnected questions. The Enlightenment caused us to split those into two different fields. Somehow, reading the Bible is different than doing dogmatic theology. And so as historical criticism has continued, as it's uh, as it's established itself in the academy, um, some of its kind of principles are that it assumes a scientific approach to Scripture. It assumes that we can take things from disciplines like history and um, and literature and archaeology and um, all these other fields and impose them onto the scripture. And in a sense, that's not necessarily all bad. I mean, it's cool when archaeologists find uh, things while they're digging that confirm scripture. Uh, that's that's great. Um, it's important for us to remember that the ancients, you know, had certain views of history or literature that we may not have today. So those are all important contributions, but it's a very scientific approach to scripture. And, and one of the, um, one of the things that it does as a result of that is it takes away this idea of the senses of scripture. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, and, and not every church father, like I said, used all four senses and some would even say that certain texts don't lend themselves to different senses. Um, how are you going to read Paul allegorically? You know, you're not, you just read him literally, but, the historical criticism movement assumes that the text really only has one meaning, and that could that traditionally has been whatever the author intended. So if we can just get inside Paul's head, we can know exactly what he meant. Right. Whereas just, the, I would argue that the church fathers also had an authorial intent uh, approach, but their author was God. Mm -hmm, exactly. And so the goal was to not get in Paul's head or Peter's head or Moses's head, but it, to, if you can get in the triune head, <laughs> then you can figure out and plumb the depths of reality of all truth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so to stop at Paul's mind is that that just seems in the church fathers thinking that's just shallow. And what it also lends itself to is perhaps Paul or Peter or Moses wrote things and they didn't even recognize that what they're writing had deeper meaning. So that's, that's the great issue in my mind with the historical critical method is it's ultimately a non-spiritual reading. And by that, I mean like an atheistic reading of the text. It's just treating the Bible like any other text. And you have to assume that the author knew exactly what he was doing. And I think the approach of the church fathers, the pre-modern approach, allows it to be no. The God had them write this verse 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, so that today we would discover this deeper meaning and apply it to our life. It's it's also, I think, falls into the trap of reconstructionism in the sense that um, if you just know all the historical variables, you can come away with a real what Paul really meant about something or what Peter really meant about something. But the problem is that as we're removed from the context in which they wrote— we will never have all of those variables. Yeah, that's right. So, so it really is almost a kind of arrogance, I would think, that we could ever fully reconstruct what the original author was trying to say anyways. Uh, not, right. that we shouldn't, not that we shouldn't allow history to influence our interpretation, but that we can't possibly think that we're going to, through historical means, fully understand Paul's 
own mind or something on a, on a topic. Right. If scripture is sufficient for all things pertaining to salvation, then that means kind of that scripture reading approaching in and of itself with its historical interpretation, meaning the tradition of the church guiding how passages have been used, should be sufficient to get us to an appropriate meaning. That doesn't mean history can't come along and help us with minute details, but I I just get very suspicious when history says, or the historical critical method says, we've understood this passage wrong the entire time. Let's completely rework it. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And the other thing that that historical criticism does, uh, and and there's some positive and some negative here, is it tries to dissect the text based on things like form, source, and redaction criticism. Mm-hmm. This idea that that scripture was compiled over long periods of time using different. Uh, documents that were eventually put together and made into one. You know, it's a very evolutionary um, view of how Scripture came to be. And again, I don't think we need to reject that premise wholesale. Um, There are things, and especially in, you know, the Pentateuch, where sometimes it seems a little weird stylistically or, um, you know, why is this here? And, um, you know, we ask those questions and we might be able to learn some things, you know, if we embrace uh, some of the contributions that historical criticism has made. But but this idea that um, and and this was really popular in the 1960s during the biblical theology movement, that we can use those developments to do theology. So, like, I'm thinking about uh, Gerhard von Rod, who was an Old Testament scholar who did a lot of work on the Pentateuch. And so he was a really big believer in JEDP theory, documentary hypothesis. So he would do things like diagnose uh, in a passage which verses were written by which source, and then do theology from those verses based on the source. Oh, well, J contributed verse 18 in this chapter, so he must have meant X, Y, and Z because his context was, you know, A, B, and C. Yeah, uh, you're just making up a text yeah. within a text. And you're trying to get behind the text rather than just wrestling with what's in front of you. And that's where we've arrived today. I think that we're really at a better place with narrative criticism and canonical criticism where it's like, you know what? I don't know if there's three sources or 3,000 sources, but what I have in front of me is one single book. And even better, I have a canon. Exactly. And so I need to be in conversation with the whole thing. And that allows us, I think, to make those connections uh, both allegorical and, and even on the literal level across the canon. So we can understand, uh, you know, why Joseph is significant in light of the Christ story uh, in a way that that if we just took the historical critical approach, we really can't do that. And so, yeah, I think you're totally right. Canonical criticism, narrative criticism, um, but but b- allowing ourselves to explore the allegorical. I think those are are really important Um, takeaways from this conversation. I totally agree. Well, if you're interested in this topic, uh, there are a couple books uh, that that we would recommend that you go check out um, because uh, there's, and and I think I would say based on reading and, and taking classes and things that this seems to be, the patristic approach seems to be gaining some popularity again. Uh, There seems to be a kind of resourcement in our own day of returning to, the fathers. 
Um, so there's been a lot of good work as a result of that. Uh, so, for example, one book that I think is really great is Scripture as Real Presence uh, by future guest of the show, Dr. Hans Borsma. That interview will be out next week. And we talk a lot about some of these same topics that we've discussed today. Um, and, and he does an excellent job there. Uh, Lectio Divina by Duncan Robinson does a good job of uh, of looking at different church fathers and their unique contributions to biblical theology of the early church and also putting those in conversation with modern uh, literary criticism and things like that, which is is helpful. Um, Michael Graves has a book called The Inspiration and Interpretation of the Scriptures, What the Early Church Fathers Can Teach Us, which kind of does what Duncan Robinson's book does, too. And then uh, if you really want to do some serious reading, Medieval Exegesis, which is a three-volume set by Henri de Lubac, is excellent. But if you need a shorter read, uh, he has another one called Scripture and the Tradition, both of which are are super helpful. And I would just add— just pick up the church fathers and read mm-hmm. them. Now, you're not going to—maybe the place to start is is sermons, but as you mentioned earlier, theology, what we would call systematics or dogmatics, and biblical theology, this is all intertwined in their minds. So you're not going to be able to pick up a volume just on, you know, origin and biblical theology. It's it's just his writings that—and you will you have to pay attention to how he's using Scripture. But you can find great resources like Catena Area, which is these uh, fathers and other medieval commentaries on Scripture— and then I think this is a great resource. Uh, it's, a, it's a website that I'll put in the show notes. It's www.lectionarycentral.com. And what it has is the historic one-year Anglican lectionary. And so you can click a Sunday. And then off to the side, it gives you commentaries by church fathers, by other people that for the gospel, for the epistle. And so you can just even be in conversation as you're preparing either sermons or getting ready to listen to a sermon. What did the church father say? Just expose yourself to them. And what you'll find out is some of them are a bit, they go really far in the allegory, like Origen. He can go really far at times and you go, I don't even know what we're talking about. But I think you can see more balanced approaches like St. Augustine, who is definitely a product of the patristic age, but is speaking in a way that I think us 16 centuries later will deeply resonate with. So read the church fathers. And I think that's probably the best way to begin understanding their, their approach to scripture. If you want a good place to start with the church fathers too, I mean, like you said, Augustine is always good. Um, but one other book that you might want to think about studying would be song of Solomon. Uh, the, the patristic commentaries on song of Solomon is are excellent. Uh, when especially the medieval one, Bernard of Clairvaux. Bernard of Clairvaux and Origen has uh, homilies on Song of Songs that I think Bernard must have known about. Um, They're definitely in conversation with each other, but, but Bernard's commentary is fantastic as well. Yeah, and just to reiterate, if this conversation today has been kind of hard, bizarre, over your head, all we're trying to say is that Scripture, there's more to Scripture than meets the eye. There's a deeper meaning, which is Christ. This is how the church fathers read it, because this is how Jesus taught the apostles to read Scripture. I'm thinking of Luke 24, where he 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 has the Eucharistic act in front of them. He breaks bread, and he teaches them that it's that Scripture is all about him, that the law and the prophets don't just point towards him, but actually are accounts of him and his life and his working. And it's because of this reading of Scripture that the church fathers defended against heresy. It's, it's this type of approach to Scripture, these four senses, 
as I mentioned at the very beginning, that bring you wonderful doctrines such as the consubstantial trinity, that bring you the two natures of Christ, that bring you the virgin birth. I mean, these sorts of things that are so highly defended um, all flow from patristic hermeneutics. And I think it's interesting you see today as that sort of hermeneutic has been, oh, turned, had, had, the academics have turned their nose up at it as being primitive. What's been the result? Unorthodox theology. Yep. I'm thinking of the bishop in uh, The Great Divorce, who's in hell and runs the theology um, conference that they have there. And he presents his paper. You know, he doesn't believe in the virgin birth and things, but he also has this sort of rigidly historical critical view of, of Scripture. Oh, um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it makes for, for sure. It's both uh, funny and sad at the same time. Yeah, that's a good note to end on. Yes, it is. <laughs> so now it comes to the point of the show where we talk a little bit about things that we've been into lately. So, Father Miles, what have you been into? Oh, man, I geeked out recently and read all of Beowulf. I don't think I've read Beowulf since high school. And even then, I bet I read only parts of it. And it was amazing. So I'm kind of a geek straight up geek when it comes to language. And I have been listening to another podcast for years now called the history of the English language. You can find it. It's, uh, I think very good. My wife thinks it's incredibly dry, but I love the history of English. I love all that goes into language and ling linguistics. And so that led me into where we are in the podcast, kind of a historical approaches. we talked about Beowulf not long ago. We, I'm not on the podcast. I just listened to it. And so it made me read, want to read Beowulf. And it was amazing. I mean, this is the oldest poem in English. It's, it's epic. It's beautiful. It's great. And there's so many Christian undertones and overtones and explicit references that I just loved it. So if you haven't read Beowulf in a while, I encourage you to get a good translation, read it. It's not hard. It's actually really fun to read. And afterwards, you're kind of speaking and old English poetry for a few days and you realize just how boring novels are once you've read epic poetry. There's an interesting exercise in higher criticism about Beowulf about those explicit Christian references in this story that it, that those may have been added later by Christians, but it doesn't matter. It's in the final form. It's in the final form. It's great. And in fact, I'm, I was really surprised the copy of Beowulf I have is the Barnes and Nobles just uh, classical literature edition. You're probably familiar. They have tons of classical literature produced in that series. And the guy who wrote the introduction defends hardcore that the Christian elements in Beowulf are integral to understanding the story and are original to the story. Interesting. That the well, story I, was written as a Christian epic. Hmm. I actually have written an article about Beowulf uh, that we can put in the show notes too, about uh, how it helps understand have. atonement theology. Oh my gosh, of course you have. You are a man of so many surprises. What are you into, Father Wes? Uh, well, I've been into also a, a piece of classical literature as well, uh, The Oedipus Cycle by Sophocles. Okay. Um, yeah, yikes is right. <laughs> I, uh, I had read Oedipus Rex in high school and taught through it a few times um, as a teacher, but I had never read the whole cycle. There are two other books. It's a trilogy. Mm -hmm. Plays, really. Um, and so the other day I was at a coffee shop with my sister, who's a student at St. John's College here in Annapolis, which is a great book school. And I said, what should I read fiction wise? Because I always try and have one fiction and one nonfiction book going at a time. And she said, well, have you read all of the Sophocles uh, Oedipus cycle? And I said, no, 
So she said I should read those. So I bought it at the used bookstore um, downtown and uh, and read it in a couple of days. And it is it's pretty fascinating and and um, always interesting to to read in conversation with Christian theology and how different we are, um, just in the sense of our our God. Our having one God means that we don't have all these divinities competing against one another for supremacy. And it also doesn't mean that we have to uh, appeal to cold, hard fate. You know, we, mm. we have this idea of providence. Um, and we're also much more forgiving than they were. Um, I mean, it's amazing. Uh, Christians get a bad rap a lot of the time, but the Christian tradition is one that really emphasizes grace and, um, and benevolence to the other. Uh, but, you know, Oedipus has this uh, fall through really no fault of his own. I mean, he didn't set out to, you know, marry his mom and kill his dad, um, but he it does. So, yeah, spoiler yeah. alert, too, I guess. Um, but uh, It's like 3,000 years old. If you haven't read it by now, that's not our fault. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, but you know, from a Christian perspective, you, you sort of have compassion on him uh, as this whole thing is unfolding. Um, but the people in his own context don't have any compassion for him. I mean, mm, he's, right. he's treated as if he willfully participated in in these acts and he didn't um, well, so i just rem- think it's interesting that reminds me of uh rene girard the late roman catholic theologian and philosopher he wrote an icy satan fall like lightning incredible book just about how it's really been christian christianity's influence on culture that has created a a sense of pity and a sense of desire to help the victim mm. in culture and in story he said, that is not an ancient impulse. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely Christianity's mark on culture, which is funny because in a lot of, in some circles, it's the utter secularist atheist. You know, think of the far, far leftist in our culture with no Christian impulses in terms of their spirituality or their theology that wants to be the one that's helping the marginalized and the mm-hmm. downtrodden and et cetera. And sometimes, sadly, it's the far, far right Christians, mm-hmm. you know, hardcore in their orthodox theology that does not want to help the victims, so to speak. But even then, it's the it has been the Christian forming and shaping of society for thousands of years that has actually left its mark to make us want to help people. So anyway, I, you're just you're speaking exactly into Rene Girard's yeah. uh, theory. Well, there's also some interesting things because I know Gerard talks about scapegoating a little bit, but there's a there's an interesting, you know, at the end of the book, he's sent out into the wilderness, almost like a scapegoat. Like he bears oh, yeah. the, all the bad things that are happening in the city out into the wilderness and the, those things are taken away. And mm-hmm. it, it's very much reminded me of Leviticus 16, uh, yeah, where sure. the scapegoat uh, ritual is in, is uh, is initiated. So easy now. We don't want to allegorize that text. <laughs> oh, I already have. well good yes well uh if you like what we're doing uh make sure to follow us on facebook and twitter uh rate review and subscribe us uh, to us wherever you get your podcasts and share us with your friends if you want to contribute to the conversation with us uh, join our facebook group let us know what you think there you can email us with feedback or show ideas at the sacramentalist at gmail.com and father miles would you give us a blessing please of course The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen.